Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. As soon as she came into our family, she changed everything. She changed everybody. Everybody wanted to be kind of a better version of ourselves. She really did become the center of our world. I couldn't believe that up until she was born, I had carried so much baggage and righteousness into my relationship with my sister that overnight was irrelevant. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Alex, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Anna, for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called Inconceivable, all of which we will get into. And having read the book, I know part of the answer to this question, but I wanted to ask you, what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on what you've ended up doing with your life? God, what a great question. That is um, such a such an interesting question. So I'm one of five. I'm number two. Um, 100% my personality was very much shaped by my older sister and vice versa. The five of us are about a year and a half apart, five and seven years. Um, I think the main thing that I would say are we all did the same things until our 20s with in sports, the same music lesson, the same school and, um, loved each other, but a huge amount of intensity and a ton of estrogen. And it really was in our 20s that we started to I think, find ourselves more as individuals and discover some of the interest, talent that we didn't know we had growing up because we, you know, with five kids, um, did a lot together and did a lot of the same thing. Uh, we all are very well now, um, in many ways we did growing up, but, uh, we're all pretty tense. Um, we're all pretty assertive. Um, and I think we kind of, you know, found our individuality later on in life. This is something I always am curious about with people who come from such big families because I grew up in one that was a bit smaller. It was just me and my sister, but you have five siblings. There are two things I wonder is, you know, what impact does having such a small age gap have on the bond that you have with your siblings? And then two, what did you learn about human behavior and social dynamics from being one of five? Um, I think two things. One, uh, I think we are 
quotes, but you know, I described this to him in the book. My older sister and I really struggled with each other until she started her family. Um, and she adopted her first child when she was about 32, 33. And for me, it changed everything. Like we had been effectively in pretty significant conflict until then. Um, and carried a lot of the baggage from our child into a, into our adulthood. And, you know, when she had her first child, I was like, I don't want to carry this forward. If I want a relationship with my niece, I need a really strong relationship with my sister. So, um, you know, we went about building that. Um, secondly, I loved growing up with lots of siblings. We always had friends over, you know, we were often like 10, 12, 15 kids in the house. Um, my parents were very welcoming and that is a dynamic I know and love, but I definitely discovered later on that I like quiet time. And mm-hmm. with my kids, cause it was three and you've got a pretty active household. It's trying to find the same thing. I think it's important to be able to learn how to live with other people. I think compromise is really important. I think sharing is a great skill that you have to learn. You've got, um, you know, a, a large family. Um, but I also have made a conscious effort to, and one-on-one time with my kids um, to try to see them as individuals, which they very much are. Um, and I think the collective that I grew up in didn't give us a lot of room for that. You know, my parents were managing five young kids and careers. Um, and so I think that socialization piece, loving chaos and noise and fun and food and smells and all those things is very much part of who I am. But making sure I build in quiet time for me, for the kids, um, for our life, um, you know, and seeing people, not just as a group, but as individuals who's been really important. Yeah. I kind of wonder like how your parents juggled five kids like that are that close in age. Cause I still very distinctly remember going over to my best friend from college's uh, house. And I think her kids are probably about the same in terms of the age gap. And I remember they were about to put the kids to bed. It was probably like eight o'clock and the girls were just like running all over the place, like screaming and yelling. And she's like, Oh, she's like, they're putting on a show for you. Just so you know, you need to watch this. And she's like, by the way, we do this every night. And I was like, oh my God, this is what you do every night. So, you know, I wonder, like, you know, how did your parents manage to navigate all of this? Because that sounds chaotic. Well, the funny thing is when you become a parent, for sure, even though you say you never will, you have much more gentle feeling toward your parents than you might have previously. I remember growing up, you know, my parents were both, um, you know, active, involved parents, pretty active, involved wide. Um, I remember that, like, I remember it like yesterday, my mom just sat down in the middle of the foyer in front of her front door. She just started spitting bananas out of her mouth. And we were kind of high-fiving each other going, oh my God, we actually pushed mom to the prank where she's spitting bananas. Like, this is awesome. And uh, we laughed about it for years. That sounds terrible. But then you're a parent and I have three and 15 months. And I'm like, oh my God, I know how she felt. Um, I feel like I'm going to fit bananas and uh, you have much more contact. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for them. I have a lot of respect for um, them having a big family. I have a lot of respect for the fact that somehow, even though we're different, they managed to raise my good human. Um, I love and respect my sisters as much as anyone in the world. I love the partners they've chosen, um, but it's not easy. And, and it's imperfect. It's very imperfect. And so for a long period of time, we focus on the imperfections. And as I grew and matured and finally became a parent, I had a lot of time um, and a lot of love for the environment that my parents created for us, which involved many people outside of our family who were very much actively involved in, you know, guiding us and helping us and shaping us. 
Yeah. It, it's funny because I, I remember asking my best friend, he has, has two daughters. It's like, I have to ask you, was like, do you ever find yourself repeating things that your parents did that you swore you wouldn't do? Because I think every kid basically is like, oh, when I'm a parent, I'm not going to do this to my kids. And of course, they find themselves doing exactly that. Yeah, a hundred percent. And one of the interesting things is my dad was a university president at two different universities. One when I was nine to um, about 25. Uh, and then the other when I was older, but certainly in those formative years, they would have two or 3,000 people to their house every year just entertaining like dinner and cocktail parties. And truly, they were very much the center of, of the community. Um, and we loved it. It shaped us, like learning how to speak to people, learning how to, you know, look people in the eyes, learning how to engage with an 80-year-old or 40-year-old or an 8-year-old with a great skill. But that, you know, that community influence on us as people was huge. I loved it then, and I am hugely grateful for it now. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that, uh, you know, your niece being born brought you and your sister closer together. I mean, my sister and I are five years apart, and you know, we never got to the point where we had so much conflict that we were estranged in any way or just had significant conflict. I mean, it's just stupid childhood fighting thing. But the thing that did change right after my nephew was born was how much I talked to my sister. And my sister said that, you know, like she went to Berkeley and I lived in San Francisco after I graduated from Berkeley. We probably saw each other once every maybe two months and hardly talked on the phone. And the funny thing is she called me, she said, do you ever think you'd spend this much time on the phone talking to an eight-month-old kid? who can't actually talk. What is it about that, like children coming into our lives that causes that kind of change in a family? I don't know, but it was so fundamental. And people had said to me um, when they had kids, you know, before I was a parent, you'll love your child in a way that is hard to describe. And I'd say like, well, I love my husband, David. Like, I really love him so much. And they say totally different. And they're like, I don't know what that means, but can't be that different. Um, well before I had kids, just with my niece. And I found it fascinating because my niece was adopted, so there's no genetic link. Um, as soon as she came into our family, she changed everything. She changed everybody. Everybody wanted to be kind of a better version of ourselves. She really did become the center of our world with aunts and, you know, for my sister and her husband's parents and for my parents and grandparents. Um, I don't know what that love is and I don't know what that selflessness is. But something mm-hmm. happens to you where you're focused. I couldn't believe that up until she was born, I had carried so much baggage and righteousness into my relationship with my sister that overnight was irrelevant. And it wasn't that overnight you built a great relationship. It probably took a couple of years, but that baggage really was sidelined immediately. And then we found each other in different places. But it was almost entirely her up until that point. I held her for the first time on my shoulder. And I remember thinking, we can't keep doing this. We can't stay in this place because if we do, I'll never be able to have the kind of relationship with her that I'd like. And all of us, without exception, Terry and my sister became better versions of ourselves, for sure. It just, there was a maturity that came with that that was almost immediate. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I think that that whole idea of people becoming better versions of themselves is something that I have noticed even with the presence of my nephew. Like this kid just lights up a room. My mom is much softer and calmer when he's around. Uh, you know, and, and I noticed like I was just, much more mindful about the smallest things that wouldn't have bothered me before. But like, I'm constantly thinking, okay, 
I got to keep an eye on this kid and make sure nothing happens to him. Like, you know, as I was telling you the day, my sister was like, can you watch him for 30 minutes? He's, you know, fascinated by everything he's not supposed to do. And he decided that, you know, he wanted to go play with the door stopper. And instead of just flicking it, he decided to dismantle it. My dad was like, watch closely. He's going to put the tip of that thing in his mouth. And they had told me he'd already done it. And literally five minutes after we got upstairs, I was like, damn it. I'm like, put that thing, take that thing out of your mouth. <laughs> well, you know, you have written a book, I think, about a topic that uh, is hard to talk about, uh, but important to talk about. And uh, so one, you know, I want to start by asking you, having grown up in such a large family, uh, what did that mean for you in terms of what you thought your, you know, future family and, and, you know, having children would look like? So I always thought I would have, so I, I didn't think about it for a long time. Like many women my age in my 20s, I was really focused on making sure I didn't get pregnant. Um, and then I'd say once I had relationship stability around 30, um, I just assumed I had a big family. I'm not growing up in a big family. I'm not having lots of siblings. Um, and because my mom had five kids in seven years, and I look a fair amount like her. My assumption is that my experience would be exactly like her. I had never, I mean, obviously I'd heard a bit about infertility, but like it didn't seem like it was a big deal. It didn't seem like it was a big issue. And I certainly didn't think it would be something that I would ever have to face. Um, and so I really think that there were a lot of assumptions that had nothing to do with the fact that this sort of, you know, I'll be like my mom and I'll have lots of kids. And if it's going to be easy because I'm healthy and um, why wouldn't it be that I brought into the kind of decision-making process and started at 32 and then things really fell apart from there. But 100% I thought I would be like my mom and none of us ever thought we would have any um, trouble having kids and it would be a decision that was ours to make and, you know, we would have control over it. And uh, that was very much not the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that you say in the book is that... Uh, an unfortunate side effect of infertility discussions entering the mainstream is that too many people are getting their information from popular culture. This can create harmful misperceptions, making it look easier to get pregnant or get help than it actually is. There are indeed more options for fertility preservation, such as egg freezing. These are being aggressively marketed to younger women as a panacea, but the reality is that few women have the money or health insurance coverage to afford all of these options. All this leaves women with the erroneous impression that pregnancy can happen at any age, which simply isn't true. Yeah, so I, so two things are, are going on. One, there's no question that reproductive te technology has advanced hugely, uh, even since I was going through it, you know, starting the process in 2003. Um, and, and even then, you know, in those 20 years preceding that, it had changed a lot. Um, theoretically, anyone under the sun can, today can become a parent, like single person, you know, pimp a couple. Um, like anyone can become a parent, but the access to the adoption is very limited. Uh, my concern, my primary concern in this conversation is twofold. One, um, I think that we're starting to market these things as if they are solutions and they really are just a tiny microcosm of people that can um, access them. They are very expensive. And, you know, in the U.S., it's health benefits. And if you're not covered, most people are accessing them. Um, so it's not a real solution to this problem. Um, and two, I think that there are you know, I, I think there is storytelling around this and we love a great story about, you know, 47 year olds with twins and, um, you know, you see lots more magazine covers now, you know, older public figures or celebrities having babies. Um, 
I think the image that we're presenting is that this can happen at any age. When I see the cover of a magazine and it's like a 45 or 46 year old with a child or twin, my assumption is probably it's the use of a donor egg, which is someone's choice. But in the absence of disclosing that or discussing it fully and being transparent about how use comes to become a parent, it does leave people with the impression that it happened. Of course, there are 45 year olds who get pregnant. It's very, very, very rare. Um, and my impetus in writing a book is to make sure that women get their own information and have their own information about their own bodies and they are aware of the facts so they can make decisions on the basis of those. But I think putting people out there as examples or role models, even though some of these stories are beautiful, is very misleading. And I think putting some of the technological advances out there, which are real, um, is also misleading because they are so expensive um, and access to those is so limited. And frankly, I still think most people just want to be able to have a family. Like I was very grateful that there was help, but I certainly did not want to, you know, intimate private process between me and my partner to become a medicalized process that then required a whole bunch of doctors and interventions. And, you know, it unlocked any of the beauty uh, that might have come along with it. Um, I was grateful to come out on the other side with a family, but I don't think most people want to be um, medicalizing a process and it's for a lot of people that you know, a wonderful thing to be able to do. Absolutely. Well, I think that, you know, that's part of the other reason I wanted to have you is because I wonder, you know, what is the role of media in having a responsible conversation about this? To your point, uh, you know, and I don't think what you mentioned there is isolated just to fertility issues. I mean, I think we see that with success too, where we have like serious survivorship bias in the way that the media portrays this. And it sounds like that's effectively what's going on here. And in terms of fertility. So like, what do you think the role and responsibility of media in, you know, like informing society about this is? So I think what's happening now is there's a storytelling piece that's happening, which I think is great. And so I do think more people are being transparent. I love it when any public figure, including Michelle Obama, who revealed a couple of years ago that her daughters were born through IVF. I think it's amazing when public figures are open about their need for help. I think the piece that isn't yet happening is that second part, which is, so I needed help. You know, I'm, me personally, I'm 53 now. I don't want a 28-year-old to have to go down the path that I went down. For her to be able to avoid that, you've actually got to make sure that she she has information that she's able to use at the right time. And so I think that second part of, I needed help. It was really hard. It was really expensive. Um, You know, I, I could only go so far in one of the situations because, um, you know, I didn't have, resources to access more help. Um, I think those realities are important. But I think then saying, so what do we need to do to make sure that changes is that second part not happening. I think there's a lack of intentionality in the conversation to say, I'm telling my story, but I'm telling it with purpose because these are the things we need to do for someone who's 20 years younger than me to avoid the very difficult path that I had building my family. That piece, I don't think has happened yet. I think the media has a huge platform I think there's some great movies that have come out about this. I think there's great stories. I think there's more public storytelling about around compelling public figures. But I think until we get to a place where we're saying, gosh, that is not how I would want someone to, or what I would want someone to have to go through to have their family. So what do, you, what do we need to back it up and make sure that they get the information, the awareness, the support they need to have a family? These are the two or three things that we have to focus on. That is what I want to see the media do. Well, you know, 
it's funny because as, as a guy, I, I don't, I, I rarely think about, you know, my own fertility as being an issue. And I still remember to this day, like when I went to a doctor's office and he was like, your testosterone is low, you need to go to a, a sperm bank and test something. And I literally, my first thought was like, does this mean that I'm going to have trouble having kids? Of course, it turned out to be like a, a false positive, but just the thought crossing my mind was one of those weird things. And I realized even in, in TV, they don't really talk about it. The only time I'd ever seen it from a male standpoint was in the TV show Brothers and Sisters, where one of the characters mm-hmm. finds out that he's sterile. Yeah. And um, so I wonder, one, like prior to like seeking fertility treatment, you know, and realizing that you're having trouble getting pregnant, what ends up being the emotional impact on the relationship? between you and your partner. And of course, more importantly, like while you're going through this, I can't imagine that it doesn't take an incredible emotional toll on you. Yeah, it does for sure. And I think I read somewhere years and years ago that 50% of couples who end up going through fertility treatments don't make it. Um, and, you know, in, I describe our, you know, journey in the book and it involved not just infertility treatment, but also losing a first child. Um, I understand that statistic. I think it puts pressure on you as individuals, pressure the couple. And I think you often end up, you know, wanting different things. I was committed to becoming a parent and, you know, we had so many failures um, as we were going through this. But at one point, you know, I said to my husband, to be clear, I'm not going to change my path one way or another, whether it's through adoption, whether it's continuing treatment, whether it's doing this on my own. I'm committed to becoming a parent. I understand if you don't want to continue going down this road, but I am with you without you. And, you know, we both ended up aligned. I think, you know, the, the, the saddest thing in some ways is as soon as you turn your mind to building a family, there is something fun and beautiful. You know, I say this in the book, but I joked with all my friends once we made the decision when I was 32, they were going to start trying to have a baby. I was like, we're going to have so much sex. It's going to be so much fun. It was just this like frivolous, hilarious, fun thing that, you know, all my friends were sort of going through at the same time. And then 12 months in, nothing had happened. I'm like embarrassed to admit that, you know, I was like, how did my husband do it wrong? Like, how on earth can you not figure out how to make a baby? Like, what is going on? Um, and again, assuming I'm healthy and, you know, my mom had five kids in seven years, so somehow that would impact my ability to have a baby. Um, these are ridiculous assumptions, but it wasn't until we got into a fertility special office almost two years in that I started to get really basic information and facts about what was going on. And we realized what we were up against. Um, I think the lead up to that, there was no fun. There was no beauty. There was tension, uh, frustration. You know, totally but surely we're sort of pulling apart. Um, and this thing that we assumed would happen happily, normally, easily didn't happen. And we were kind of left in it, um, looking at each other you know, where do we go from here um, with a lot of question marks ahead of us. So it it is very difficult. And I don't think it's something I would want people to go through. I'm super grateful for anyone um, that there is theoretically access to help, but it's just not a path that you want to go down unless you need to. Absolutely. Well, so you alluded uh, earlier to the fact that, you know, the first uh, attempt, you actually lost a child. Talk to me about the the grief and you know the like finding the sort of courage in yourself to risk trying again when something so tragic happens so the the shock for us and i really think that for a long period of time there's sort of an element of that ptsd which obviously grieving the loss of the child is very profound i think it's almost the lead up to that that it felt 
like having the rug pulled out from under us. So we had been in fertility treatment for three, three and a half years by then. Um, and we eventually moved to work with a surrogate because for whatever reason I couldn't get pregnant. Um, and she got pregnant very easily and then miscarried. And then she got pregnant very easily again and she carried to term. I think it was almost taking this three, three and a half year experience um, and being on the cusp of moving to a different place. And I remember someone saying to me about a week before um, our daughter was born, you know, whatever you've gone through to this point, it's going to pale in comparison to becoming a parent. Like you're going to forget everything. And I remember thinking, oh, she's right. It's, it's irrelevant. Like, yes, it was a horrible three years. It was painful, expensive. It was, you know, kind of felt like it took the life out of me. Um, but it really doesn't matter. Like we're here now. And I feel like walking into that hospital the day my surrogate called that she'd gone into labor um, and really preparing myself. And, you know, I ran back to my car when we kept the car to put on proper shoes. But then, I don't know, you need running shoes. You need your feet to be really grounded. Like you're about to think I'm a mom and you've got to be feet firmly planted. And then, you know, as I described in the book, we end up in a waiting room, um, waiting for the doctor to come see us. And I've been you know, things were too far along for me to be in the delivery room. And, and then they came down to see us and told us that when our surrogate got to the hospital, labor was too far along and our daughter was stillborn. And I feel like it was the combination of the loss and the combination of, I just don't understand how we were on the cusp of something that we had fought so hard for. Um, and it, it just, it felt like, like it felt like a, it felt like a terrible movie. Like this can't possibly be how this ends. And I think the combination of the grief and the absolute shock that three years into this, this is how our first, you know, foray into parenthood um, ended. Like, it just, it was almost too much. It really did. You know, I say this to people that it didn't just break my heart, it broke my brain. I just couldn't make sense of it. Um, the decision to try again was not difficult. I mean, within a week, uh, my husband and I looked at each other and said, the end of this road for us is this. I don't think we'll ever recover. Um, and the only way we're going to recover is if we try to become parents again. Um, and I can't just experience the pain of losing a child. I want to experience the joy of raising a child. And the only way we're going to do that is to um, try again. And then moving to pads forward, truly grieving because there was no way around it. It wasn't, you know, moving on to the next thing. It was like, this is real. This feels like it's almost going to kill me. Um, but keeping my head in a place where I could take pieces in place for another surrogacy, um, with parallel path that we move forward and both really unfolded over two, two and a half years. And I would say we only moved to a place that I thought was, you know, a level of happiness again and stability in our life and our relationship when we uh, became parents the second time. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You alluded to the idea that you would, you know, like you would forget about this. And I, from the handful of parents that I've ever talked to, like female friends of mine who I know have lost babies, they said that you never forget. Like it's not some, it doesn't go out of your mind, even after, it, you know, like you have your, your first child, like the healthy child is born. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I remember learning that our, um, our second uh, child was a daughter and feeling just almost, there was like a, not a resentment, but there was maybe a little bit of a fear, like she can't replace her, like nothing can ever replace her. And, you know, in the end that would be relevant, but it was almost like the place for number one is going to be placed for number two, but they're different. Um, I think what surprised me with the not forgetting it is it's not with me every day. Like I truly have rebuilt a happy life. And so early on, you think every single day, I'll think about my daughter. Every single day I'll go to bed at night and the pride in the heart is going to break. Um, that's not how I move it. That being said, there is a part of me when I close my eyes doing anything. It's the exercise, it could be washing dishes, it could be, um, you know, sitting 
and letting my mind wander when I read a book, there's a part of me that can go back from that hospital rig in a nanosecond. Um, and I'm there and I'm there with her and it's deeply emotional. It's under the surface. There's a level of pain and intensity that in some ways I welcome because it's my connection to her. And, you know, I say in the book, I don't want to live that way. I made a very conscious choice. I didn't want to live in pain. Um, but I also have it in somewhere in me that I can access whenever I want and go back to that place and be there for a moment because it's my only experience with my daughter. And so on a day-to-day basis, if not with me, you know, my kids, I have a whole peer group that had babies around the same time. I had a very dear friend who had a daughter, you know, five days before my daughter's family was born. Um, and I don't, you know, when their kids graduate from elementary school or high school and move on to mouth schools, I don't think of it that way, which is how I thought I would experience. It's a very different experience. It's very real, but it also feels, fortunately, like it's in a safe place. Yeah. Well, talk to me about the experience of a surrogate, because you say there's often a closeness in surrogacy, given the unique nature of the relationship that transcends the limited extent that you actually know each other. And the reason that I am so curious about this is because, like, for most of us, I think our experience of surrogacy is pretty much what we've seen on TV. Like, the only thing I know about surrogates is the TV show Friends, <laughs> which is not, it, that's literally my only sort of pop culture reference that I can draw on in this moment of, oh, and I think it was Anna Ferris who ends up playing their surrogate and she ends up being kind of wacky and, you know, like, you wonder about all these things. So talk to me about that experience. So it's a very, for me, it was a, an unusual relationship. Um, and I was on, I was texting with one of my surrogates from Green Bay yesterday because her daughter actually is, uh, is caring for a couple who I put her in touch with. Um, and so I was just checking on that. Um, you know, it's really unusual. You do this incredible thing together, very intimate. Um, I have true love for both the surrogates that carried my daughter at Georgia and Sadie. Um, they're very good people. Um, it was, it was a, it was a real relationship, like the real people with real wants and need. Um, and I remember at the outset saying, there's a pretty significant thing you're about to do with another human being. Um, it's not all going to go the way you want it or think it will. Um, you're going to have to make it work. And so it, you asked at the beginning, like that art of compromise and listening and understanding it's not just about your needs, um, was real. Um, and it was over the course of, you know, the year, year and a half we were working together, you know, between the prep and then doing procedure and then the pregnancy, um, back and forth. And you're dealing with two human beings who are, you know, bringing a child into the world or three, you know, with my husband. Um, and, you know, it's a real relationship. I think that it's an unusual thing to be. Rarely do you ask, you know, someone to do something of this magnitude for you. I obviously had a huge amount of respect for, for them, but there was, an emotion and a love and an intimacy to this. And we had no context before then. You know, I remember being in the hospital with um, the surrogate who carried my daughter, George. And, you know, as I share in the book, she, her water broke 12 weeks early, which was terrible. Um, so at 28 weeks, uh, and then she was airlifted to um, a large hospital in Toronto because she lived in a rural community outside of Toronto, Canada. And uh, they put her on bed rest and we were hoping she'd last as long as possible. Um, and she ended up uh, a week later going into labor. So Georgia was going to be born at 29 weeks. And she went into labor before they could do an epidural. And so she was in a huge amount of discomfort. We're alone in this tiny room near the NICU. And, um, you know, the doctor says all you can do to make her comfortable is 
try to straddle her hip when she's going um, through contractions to try to make it more comfortable for her. So I'm basically straddling her, like straddling her hips and I'm giving her water, you know, ice chips and going through this experience more likely, you know, at the early stage of kind of going through that the labor process together. And I remember thinking, for both of us, in some ways, I can't believe we're here. This isn't how we thought it was going to unfold. And I remember thinking, I don't know her favorite color. I don't know. Um, you know, there were so many questions. I was like, I'm going through the most intimate experience of my life. And there's 55 things I don't know about this person, um, despite the fact that we're going through this together. And it was that disconnect. Um, there is a level of gratitude. I think most people feel looks quite profound. And I certainly hope they do. Um, and a level of love and affection, but conversely, they're not also day-to-day friends. Um, you know, they live in a different, unique part of my life. Yeah, that's the part that I sort of wondered about too, is, you know, like legal ramifications, like what happens after, uh, you know, like does this person have any contact with your kids? Like, um, you'll have to forgive me since my references are all based on popular culture, but uh, this is another one I saw in the TV show Parenthood where uh, they find a girl who gets pregnant who's you know decides to give you know her baby to them and then they get to the you know delivery room where she's delivered and she changes her mind and it's like this really heartbreaking episode but like what is all that like how do, how do all those like dynamics work in in terms of surrogacy it's actually a great question i mean in that situation that with her baby and she has the right to choose to keep it or to um, put maybe a production in a surrogacy situation like ours, you know, there's no genetic connection to the surrogate. And um, so, you know, it is our genetic offspring that someone is carrying. I think the misperception, because there were crazy stories, you know, 20 years ago when I was um, going in, it's like someone's going to run off with your baby. I remember the first time I met my surrogate in her home, you know, I came out on the other side and I liked her and respected her and she had two young kids. And I went to meet her in her home because I thought like, is this, woman going to run off with my child and having gone through it now worked with a number of different surrogates none of them were going to run off with my child um but i do think there is um you know there, there there's no legal connection to to the baby i think the really two challenging things i experienced were one with our first child sam and the hospital hadn't done this before they had not done a surrogacy before they did not know what to make of me and so it was clear that the person carrying the baby in their mind with the mother. And it was clear that my husband, he said he was the father with the father because that's what they understood. You know, pregnancy, be it as a man or the woman, someone who's carrying and someone kind of pregnant. Didn't matter how we explained it, they really struggled to figure out, you know, where I was in this. I went to all the appointments. The really hard thing was, um, you know, skirting my sort of plate, all of a sudden you lose our child and you've got these two shattered people who can, you know, hardly walk. And it's crystal clear who the parents are you know we live with this forever and I was like how could you this whole process could you not find a place for me and now that we've lost your child it's crystal clear I'm the mother my heart's breaking in a thousand pieces it was that strange situation of trying to insert myself into the equation that was 20 years ago when Georgia was born and you know when she went right into an incubator in the um, new native intensive care unit uh, they immediately said well um your surrogate will make all medical decision making for them like over my dead body. Like first of all, she doesn't want that responsibility. Second of all, we don't know if our child's gonna live or die. There's no scenario where our surrogate is making those decisions. So I was like, I don't know what you have to do. Let's not make this a legal issue, but I'm making those decisions. My husband's making those decisions for 
our daughters that ended up going to our surrogate and saying, you verbally really, you know, relinquish your decision-making authority. She's like, of course, like I'm not the parent. And so in those moments, it was very clear who the parents were. I think the legal um, piece can be difficult or not, depending on how much experience and sophistication that people have with surrogacy, but I think it ranges. And I think for some people, it's probably very difficult experience. This is a, a bizarre sort of fault, but what makes somebody want to do this, like to be a surrogate? I'm very honest about this in my book because I think the the stereotype and perception that people want to create is like Mother Teresa, you know, descends from the heavens and says, you can have a baby and so I'm going to do this for you. It's my great gift to you. And woman to woman, um, they're going to make this happen. And my surrogates who carried George and Sadie, there's no question there was like a value that and a goodness in them um, that was very real. Um, and it mattered to me and I love that. But I wanted them to have something in it for them that transcended just kind of goodness and there's a financial component to it that is real. And so for them to be able to support their family and do that um, was important. Sometimes people want to be a stay-at-home parent and this gives them the opportunity to do that for a period of time and be remunerated for caring pregnancy. Um, it can supplement someone's income. Uh, I think both are important and I think both often live in people who do it. Um, but I think both matter and I don't want this to just be portrayed as that sort of altruistic, um, you know, Mother Teresa goodness uh, piece and nor is it for most people who do this, I think just a financial transaction. I think both are there. I do also think many people with lack of surrogates, you know, get pregnant easily. Uh, they're very fertile and they enjoy pregnancy and they know they can do it comfortably and well. And they have a psychology where they say, I could do this. And at the end of this, I'll be delighted to hand someone's child over to them um, and get back to my life and my family. And with my Green Bay surrogate, you know, she's very honest. She's got five kids of her own and she cares about my daughter, Sadie, and she wants getting information about her and pictures and stuff. Um, she's like, I know what it's like to be a mother. I know what that feeling is. is not this. This is a different experience. And it's not an important one for you, but it's not becoming a parent. They think not my child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, after all this, you actually ended up getting pregnant with your son, right? I did. So talk to me about that after, you know, like, the, the, like I'm reading this section of the book where you say, you know, when David and I first started trying to have kids, I imagined different ways I would let him know that he was going to be a dad. They were all happy and playful. It seemed like such incredible news to share with your partner. In the end, six years after we talked in the balcony in Italy and decided to start a family, I sat him down for the most stilted and bizarre conversation we ever had. I told him that I'd taken a pregnancy test and that it was positive. I told him that we were having a baby. Okay, so I mean, it really, it's like, I can almost cringe thinking about being in that room because, um, uh, you know, I said, I'm pregnant and then there was total silence. Uh, and I just, I was like, I don't know where we're going from here. And uh, and we had, so at the time that I realized I was pregnant, our daughter, Georgia was six months old and our daughter, Sadie was three months old. So, you know, their infant, and I, when I'm pregnant and I tell David, and then the first thing he says to me, he goes, Am I the father? I'm like, of course you're the father. <laughs> and say, like, how is this the conversation we're having? This is not how I'm writing this full. So I said, uh, you're definitely the father. I said, I honestly don't remember how anything happens to lead to a pregnancy. But um, yes, you are 100% the father. And then we just 
effectively sat down to him. He's like, I don't understand. It's like, I mean, there's nothing to understand. It is what it is. And we're about to have three kids in 15 months. Uh, I said to him, I'm sure you're scared. I'm scared too. Um, I don't want anything terrible to happen. But now we just have to approach this like a normal pregnancy, which in the end is what it was. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the, that was actually, you kind of read my mind in terms of the, the question I want to ask next is after going through everything that you've gone through and knowing that you're pregnant, like to not be scared. And, you know, obviously for the sake of your own son's like, you know, health, you have to be able to control your emotions and everything else, right? Yeah. And look, it was probably for me the first shift that I had to make, which I, now you can't uh, live, you know, um, in fear. Like you actually have to except that you are now pregnant. I was 39. Um, I think I was going to deliver at 40. Uh, it, it, you know, it, for all intents and purposes from the get-go, it seemed like a normal uh, pregnancy. And um, you just have to accept it for what it is. Uh, the big shift after that was once we had the kid. Um, and I said, I just, having been through everything we've been through, this is obviously very unusual. You know, people used to say your cocktail party story, like you're the story that people tell at cocktail parties. Like, Can you believe it? Can you believe this? And then this happened. Um, and I really said, I, I want to lead a happy life as much as I can. And I want to be a good parent and left my own devices. I would potentially live in fear and I can't let that happen. Um, and so I really worked very hard to try to create the happiness and joy. The fear is in me. Um, and it's not just my disappear, but I more than manage it well. I really have been able to create room for a lot of different things. And with the pregnancy, I did not like pregnancy. My mom was shocked. My mom loved all of her pregnancies and she talked about like, you know, skiing and playing tennis and, you know, doing all these crazy things the night before we were born. Um, and I'm honest that it wasn't a day I enjoyed it. I'm very grateful that I was able to experience it. I found it painful. She was 10 pounds. She had um, basketball. I mean, it just was relentless. Um, but I am very grateful that I had the chance to have another child and have the opportunity. Yeah. Let's finish this up by talking specifically about policy, because you say that the stakes for women are too high to simply allow the issue of infertility to be ignored. The majority of babies in countries are now born to women in their thirties. So we need to adapt to the realities that go along with that. Our public and health policy related to infertility needs to involve governments related governments have a crucial role to play. And you say if governments truly value children the way many say they do, then family building policies should be high up on their public policy agenda. And, you know, like I know you alluded to certain businesses actually, you know, incorporating this into their health benefits, but I didn't even realize this was on the agenda of public policy or is it not? And it needs to be. Uh, I think it's both. There's been a shift in the last three or four years in the U.S. There's now a shift starting in Canada where I live. Um, and there has been very generous, uh, fertility support for, um, heterosexual couple, uh, and women in many countries for a long time. Uh, but many of them kind of policy approaches to family building are not inclusive. It really is, you know, women or heterosexual couple. Um, I think in the U.S., you know, the shift is in many large companies, you know, banks and Fortune 500 companies. It now is on the policy agenda. It's a recruitment or retention tool for um, young people, men and women, uh, knowing that this is, you know, increasingly an issue as people move to their 30s to have babies um, in Canada because it's a publicly funded health system. It really is government that has to drive this and say we're going to fund 
part of the funding we provide for um, healthcare to provinces. Uh, I think in the U.S., what you would need to do, and I think it's important to do that, is to really mandate coverage of it um, in insurance policies and prioritize it that way. Uh, this is a time-limited um, issue for people. This is not something that you're going to live with forever. You know, for people between the ages of maybe, you know, 28 and 42 at most, they may or may not need this kind of help. I think the challenge is, as the age of pregnancy has moved into our 30, you know, the things that I want women to know, on average, our fertility peaks at 28. But by the time we're actually turning our mind to this, the fertility is starting to decline. You can get your fertility information and they have a very easy set of tests that your doctor can order. Very inexpensive. A lot of it will be covered by um, insurance uh, regardless. Uh, once you have that, you actually can learn a lot about your body. And what that would have done for me isn't expedited my family building, you know, by years, but I would have jumped right into getting help at 32 and not wasted a year and a half, two years. I would have been red flagged as someone who was on the fast track and my fertility was declining more quickly. Another woman getting it would be like, no, your fertility is actually kicking along like the average woman. And so this is sort of what you can expect. It doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you a lot. Doing that alone and pushing that conversation and making sure doctors are having it routinely with women in their 20s and normalizing this would be a big step. Getting their information from the age of 28 onward annually as part of their medical checkup would be a big step. And then separately, I think you've got to work on a bigger policy change with um, insurance coverage and health benefits to, uh, to make sure that it's accessible for, you know, women, men, single people, things that cut the you know, lots of people have been desired to become a parent. Um, I think it's a really important decision for people to be able to make. I don't think it is unique to women. I think women and men are both interested in becoming parents. Uh, and it's a very, very difficult thing to take that choice away from people. Well, I want to finish this up with two final questions. I mean, for potential parents, you know, aspiring parents who are listening to this, people who may be dealing with these same issues, uh, what do you want them to know? I mean, especially when it comes to dealing with the emotional toll this takes on you? Um, thanks. I'd like to sort of end on a positive. I think the emotional toll is real, and I think as much as possible, if people can avoid it, uh, they should. I do think getting informed is really important. So at 25, people are not thinking about babies generally, um, and so that's probably too young. I think that by the time you're in your late 20s, for sure as a woman, you should be getting your fertility a checkup done. As a man, if you're doing this with a partner, uh, you should be getting your fertility checkup done as well just to make sure they know she's there or the man generally if you're interested in your baby. The really easy fertility workup to do, much easier for men, um, much, much easier to address issues on the male side than the women's side generally. Um, but I think that information piece is huge. Um, and I think trying to make sure that you end up doing this as easily as possible and getting to the other side as easily as possible is important. One thing I teach people do often is just trying to think over and over and over for years, thinking if it's going to happen. Um, that might be what people hope happens, but I think being informed and making decisions based on facts and information that's relevant to you is important. And while, uh, you know, I'd say to anyone, don't put your head in the stand if you need help, get it. Um, on the first step, and that is getting information that's relevant to you like your own body. Well, I have uh, one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? God, that's a good question. You're really drawing me with that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, unmistakable, I guess, is memorable. I think doing something um, 
valuable. I think doing something unique, I think, um, you know, doing your best to have an impact and make an implant. Um, and that 100% is what I've tried to do with my family building experience and uh, the book uh, writing about my infertility experience uh, to do as much as possible to ensure that others, you know, don't face the same obstacles. So I think doing something um, impactful and unique would certainly fall in that category. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your book and everything else you're up to? Uh, the book is on Amazon uh, and um, many local bookstores. So I would find it online, uh, Inconceivable, My Life-Altering, Eye-Opening Journey from Infertility to Motherhood. And then I've got an author's bio online, Alex Johnson, um, Inconceivable. And uh, a little bit in social media, but I'm not a huge social media fan, so I don't like the time. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.